Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Stefano De Clara, Head of Secretariat at the International Carbon Action Partnership, or ICAP. ICAP is an international forum for governments and public authorities that have implemented or are planning to implement emissions trading systems, or ETSs. And this is the third year in a row that we are featuring their annual status report on carbon markets around the world. As Stefano will tell us, it's been a bullish year for carbon markets in China, Europe, California, and elsewhere. The combination of economic recovery after COVID and increasing ambition of policymakers have led to a considerable increase in market prices. We'll talk about those developments and more in today's episode. Stay with us. All right, Stefano De Clara from the International Carbon Action Partnership. Welcome to Resources Radio. Hi, uh, and thank you for, for having me here. It's a pleasure. It's our pleasure, and it's our third year in a row where we are featuring uh, your organization's annual emissions trading worldwide status report. Um, So we're going to talk about what's been happening in carbon markets around the world. Uh, But first, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues, either at a young age or or later in life. So what sort of drew you into this career? Um, Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, we are... Uh, unfortunately, living at a time when uh, climate change is uh, one of the most uh, difficult challenges of uh, facing mankind uh, right now. Uh, but at the same time, we are luckily living at a time when there is widespread uh, consciousness about the, the issue. Uh, and I personally was lucky enough to grow up in a generation where uh, the consciousness and the perception about uh, this problem has always been, at least for the vast, vast majority of, uh, of the people living in my generation, being taken from, uh, from granted from, from the outset. So I was born in the, uh, in the late uh, 80s, and I think it's fair to say that uh, you know, my generation uh, was the, the first one that uh, grew up with a full consciousness of, uh, of the climate change issue and of the, of the challenge facing um, humanity uh, arising from, uh, from this uh, issue. Um, just to give you a, um, a, a quick anecdote, uh, one of the first memories that I have from uh, primary school, actually, so I think I was uh, seven or eight, uh, yeah, probably six or seven years old then, uh, was taking part to a contest to, um, to design some sort of a painting that would go on, uh, on a trash can for uh, recycling and uh, for like how silly that uh, can, can look. It, uh, it makes you realize that uh, you know, I, we are, or I belong to a generation that uh, grew up with a good degree of uh, environmental and, and climate consciousness. And that was also reflected in the... Um, in the opportunities that uh, that we had uh, around us. So, for example, I did uh, an undergrad in environmental science and a master in uh, sustainable development with a focus on, uh, on the energy and resources systems uh, that are two programs that likely did not exist uh, until a few uh, years earlier and that now are standard in most uh, universities. So... I was lucky enough to to grow up uh, in a context that gave me the opportunity to, to get into uh, environmental issues from the get-go. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up in uh, northeastern uh, Italy. Um, so yeah, uh, 
pretty rural area, uh, far from the, the usual touristic circles, but again, really nice uh, region to uh, to grow up in. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. I would I would love to visit there sometime. I've actually never been to Italy, so that's got to um, be part of my agenda in the future, I hope. Um, but uh, let's talk now about the status report itself. Um, we're going to focus our conversation on China and Europe today, but I'm hoping you can start us off by just giving us some high-level data points about you know, how widespread emissions trading is currently around the world and whether these programs are generally expanding or contracting. Yeah, uh, happy to to do that. And um, it's always fascinating to to look at uh, what comes out from uh, the status report that we release every every year. Uh, so just for context, that is a um, a report that we release uh, every year around uh, this time, so around uh, late March, early April, that looks at uh, at the state of play for uh, emission trading systems uh, worldwide. And uh, often, you know, as we start to to work on uh, on the report, we can anticipate what the the key trends will uh, will be in a, in a in a particular year. Or what we'll uh, what we we'll learn as part of that process, but we never know what the, the full picture will look like until we uh, we get to the end of uh, of the process. And um, as you might imagine, 2021 was a very important year for emission trading systems. Um, it was uh, overall clearly a year of uh, consolidation for existing systems as they emerged from the uh, from the COVID uh, pandemic and from the uh, the COVID induced uh, shocks, and as more and more uh, countries consolidated those systems as a way to align them with their long term uh, commitments. So just to give you a quick uh, overview of uh, of the numbers that uh, come out from uh, from this year report, uh, we do have now as of today. Uh, 25 uh, systems in operation uh, uh, globally uh, at all uh, level of uh, government uh, and 22 more uh, systems are either under development or under consideration. Uh, the 25 systems in operation cover uh, one third of the global population uh, and 70% uh, of uh, the global uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Um, the jurisdictions that uh, operate uh, emission trading systems uh, today account for 55% uh, of the global GDP. Also, again, coming out from the COVID pandemic and uh, as part of the alignment process with the, uh, the long-term uh, targets, prices have been uh, increasing in all systems uh, over the course of uh, 2021. And um, as a consequence, the, the revenues that the uh, system generated have also increased uh, significantly, uh, bringing the, uh, the cumulative uh, total of uh, auctioning revenues to, to more than uh, 160 billion uh, US dollars globally, which is uh, more than a 50% uh, increase compared to, to last uh, year. Um, and as a last uh, consideration, uh, ETS are also increasingly becoming uh, a key tool to reach uh, net zero commitments and long-term commitments that governments have formalized at uh, COP26. Over uh, one-third of, um, of the emissions captured by net zero commitments globally are covered by uh, an emission trading system. So that really tells you that uh, these policy tools are positioning to become uh, a key contributor to the net zero uh, challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would just point 
listeners to the report itself, there's a wonderful series of infographics starting on page 32 in the report, which of course we'll have a link to in the show notes. And you can get some of those stats like 17% of global greenhouse gas emissions covered and trends over time and prices and geographies. It's really, really nicely done. Um, but let's talk now about China, um, which is now the home of the world's largest emissions trading program. Can you give us a quick overview of the program and, uh, as you mentioned, how it fits into China's larger goal, uh, its nationally determined contribution of uh, aiming for net zero emissions by 2060? Yeah, and uh, China is a fascinating example to, to look at. Um, so first of all, uh, the Chinese national ETS started uh, to uh, have uh, trading in the system in 2021, and that was a major development uh, for, for the year. And uh, that is really uh, the completion of, uh, of an almost 10-year uh, uh, journey that started all the way in 2013 when China uh, launched uh, regional uh, pilot systems that were aimed at uh, you know, understanding how emission trading systems could work in different uh, contexts and in different provinces in uh, China. And based on that experience, uh, all the way back in 2017, China started the, uh, the journey to, uh, to design, develop, and launch uh, a system that would operate uh, um, at the national level, and this is really what came to fruition in 2021 when the uh, when the national ETS was uh, first launched, and then it started uh, to um, to operate. Uh, and as you might imagine, just the uh, the sheer uh, size of, of the Chinese economy will uh, clearly indicate the, the relevance of that uh, system. Um, so. China obviously has a target to, to peak emission by 2030 and to achieve carbon neutrality by uh, 2060. And the, the ETS will be a key component to, uh, to achieve that, uh, that target. Um, so far, it only covers the, the power sector and the additional sectors will be phased in over time. But just by covering the, the power sector in China, uh, it is the, the largest uh, emission trading systems in um, in the world. So it covers more than uh, 2,000 uh, power companies uh, across all of China uh, for a total coverage of uh, 4.5 billion tons. Just to give you a perspective, that is more than twice as much as the uh, EUETS, which is the, the second largest system and was for a long time the largest system in in operation. As I said, uh, more sectors are expected to be phased in uh, over time and already um, in the near future, uh, likely. And this sector will likely be uh, aluminum, cement, steel, and other sectors such as petrochemical or paper will also be phased in uh, over time. And now that the system is up and running, China will start, obviously, to consider the, uh, the long-term emission trajectory all the way to, to 2060 and to understand how the, the system will uh, will fit into this, uh, this trajectory. So far and up until now, the Chinese ETS is a, an intensity-based uh, system. So it doesn't work uh, on the basis of, of an absolute uh, cap such as the uh, EU or the California one. Uh, and so as part of the alignment process with the, with the long-term target, it might also move uh, to, uh, to adopting an absolute cap uh, over time. 
That's really interesting. And um, just one other data point to help listeners get a sense of the scale of this market. You mentioned that it was on the order of 4.5 uh, gigatons of CO2 per year. Um, total emissions across the entire economy in the U.S. are on the order of 5 gigatons of CO2 per year. So almost as large as all of the emissions from the United States uh, from uh, from carbon dioxide. Um so that's a great overview of China's program. Can you talk a little bit about prices um, that we've been seeing recently in the Chinese market and you know, whether you have any expectations about future prices, whether they are likely to rise or stay consistent? What do you think about that? Yeah, and um, that's always an interesting uh, dimension to, to look at because uh, eventually uh, emission trading systems are meant to, to generate uh, a price on, on CO2. Um, so far, and for the, for the few months uh, in which we had uh, trading in the, in the Chinese ETS, prices were in line with the, with the prices observed in the, uh, in the different uh, pilot systems at the regional level in, in China. So that is just below uh, 10 uh, US dollars uh, a ton, I think. Uh, they're fluctuating between uh, 6 and uh, 8 uh, um, US dollars over the, the last few months, which is more or less roughly also the, the level at which uh, pilot uh, systems in China uh, trade. And uh, that is obviously not uh, surprising. Uh, all systems uh, tend to, to start from uh, relatively uh, low carbon prices as they, um, you know, as they get up and running and as they get the other system in order. And then uh, prices tend to, to raise over time as the other system is also uh, tightened uh, over time. So looking at uh, future price evolution, uh, a lot will depend on uh, what the future design choices for the Chinese market will, uh, will be. Namely, uh, how the, the cap setting will, will work in the future, how stringent uh, allocation will be, and also obviously um, how and when it will be expanded to, um, to new uh, sectors uh, over time. Yeah, that, that'll be really interesting to watch. And um, so we could talk about the Chinese market for a long time, uh, but uh, we're going to switch geographies now and move over to Europe, um, where uh, emissions trading have been going on for more than 15 years in the EU emissions trading system, or ETS. Um, carbon prices in Europe uh, in the last year have really increased dramatically. They've reached all-time highs, uh, both for the EU and in the UK's um, now separate but related uh, carbon market. Can you help us understand some of the dynamics behind uh, those price increases and what it might tell us about the future of those trading systems? Yeah, and uh, that is also obviously one of the most interesting developments uh, that we saw over the course of, uh, of last year. Um, so we did reach uh, all-time highs in, um, in the past few months in the uh, EUETS. Uh, but that is a, um, a journey that uh, started a few years uh, back. So if you look at, uh, at price evolution in the uh, EU ETS, prices have started to, to steadily rise all the way back around mid-2018. Uh, and I think the reason for that is quite, uh, quite simple. Uh, prices rose uh, steadily over time uh, up until the recent uh, all-time highs on the back of expectations of uh, more uh, stringency and more ambition in, in the system. So 
back in uh, mid 2018 uh, in Europe everyone was expected the uh, the market stability reserve to to start uh, operating which was a mechanism that uh, was meant to uh, tighten the uh, the supply level in the system uh, and after that prices continued to um, to rise as the discussion on uh, on the long-term target for Europe, so the 2050 goal, and on increasing the, the 2030 uh, target uh, started to um, to take place, and um, you know, uh, halfway through uh, last year in 2021, in July, the EU released the uh, the biggest uh, reform uh, package for climate policy in its uh, history. Um, that uh, comprises a lot of different uh, elements, including also a strengthened uh, EU ETS. And that really gave a signal to uh, regulated entities and to investors in the system about the, uh, the seriousness that uh, the EU has in uh, raising the, the ambition of, uh, of its uh, ETS. And that uh, is the, the sort of uh, signal that then determines uh, an increase in price because people know that uh, the system will only become more and more stringent over time and more and more ambitious over time, delivering increased abatement uh, over time. So prices are expected to, to increase in the future and that is the, the trend that we've been uh, observing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And just to give people another kind of couple of data points here, you know, most of the 2010s uh, prices in the EU ETS were you know, on the order of $10 per ton or, or lower in some years. Uh, but in 2018, as you mentioned, we saw an increase up to maybe $25 or $30 a ton. By 2020, we were uh, above $30 a ton. And by the end of 2021, we were up to $90 per ton. So really rapid growth uh, in those prices, which of course signals something good, uh, which is which is increased ambition. Um, one of the really interesting parts of the report for me was the discussion of the expansion of the EU program into maritime transport, so uh, so ocean-based transport primarily. Can you tell us why that's a significant development for Europe uh, and how it might inform other countries as they look to cover emissions from the transportation sector more comprehensively, not just for uh, cars and trucks and on-road vehicles, but increasingly for international and, uh, and seaborne transport? Yeah, and um, as you as you point out, uh, ETS expansion to uh, to cover new sector um, is a key trend that uh, we are observing right now, and uh, that means uh, you know moving away from the traditional sectors that are usually covered by uh, NETS, so you know power and industry, into covering an additional set of uh, sectors, and uh, you know there's a there's a need for that because as um, climate commitments become uh, more ambitious and more stringent. Uh, all sectors will need to contribute to the, the decarbonization challenge uh, and uh, doing so uh, through the extension of, a, of an ETS price signal uh, has uh, obvious benefits in uh, you know, exposing more and more parts of your economy to the same uh, price signal that can uh, drive uh, decarbonization. 
Um, the EU, as part of the July 2021 package that I uh, referred to earlier, actually has two different proposals to, um, to expand uh, the reach of, of the ETS to new sectors. You have the, uh, the maritime uh, transport uh, uh, sector proposal that you mentioned that is aimed at uh, bringing uh, the, the maritime transport sector into the, the existing uh, EU ETS, and then there's a different proposal that aims at uh, setting up uh, a separate new ETS for uh, fuels used in uh, transport and um, and buildings. So that uh, you know, those are two different approaches to bring more sector additional sectors into the uh, the carbon pricing coverage and the carbon price generated by uh, an emission trading system. And obviously, I mean, in in both uh, examples, there are a lot of uh, learnings that can be made as more and more jurisdictions are also looking at uh, expanding their uh, ETS. And again, uh, that is important because as we move down the, the decarbonization curve and as we take on more ambitious uh, commitments, it's important to find the ways and cost-efficient ways to um, to decarbonize uh, different sectors across the board. That's really interesting. And, you know, one of the key components in most of the uh, energy system models that we see out there, whether it's from IPCC or other uh, organizations and other modeling teams, is the inclusion of, of carbon dioxide removal. Uh, so along with reducing emissions, we're, we're increasingly seeing the need to have negative emissions in the system, whether that's nature-based technologies such as forestry uh, or technology-based like direct air capture or biomass energy with carbon capture and sequestration. Um, it seems like those are going to play a very important role in achieving a lot of these net zero emissions targets. So uh, setting aside the question of whether or not <laughs> that, that that's good or bad, right? It's controversial uh, in some, some sectors. Um, so, But setting aside that question, can you help us understand how carbon markets are looking to incorporate negative emissions into their systems uh, and like how mechanically uh, they're being uh, audited and accounted for to make sure that they are real negative emissions and not uh, what sometimes people call hot air. Yeah, and um, you know, integrating uh, removals into um, an emission trading system will be the, the challenge uh, of uh, of tomorrow, so to speak, for uh, emission trading systems. And um, you know, so far, emission trading systems have been designed as uh, tools to to reduce emissions, and they've been doing that. Uh, um, quite effectively and uh, efficiently, but understanding how a system to reduce emissions can interact with the technologies and methods to, to remove emissions is a different uh, question altogether. All we do have a few examples uh, out there of uh, systems that uh, already do that in terms of uh, you know systems that uh, either uh, include uh, forestry in the uh, in the system coverage, such as the the New Zealand ETS, or allow offset methodologies that uh, uh, have removals uh, methods uh, included in the um, in the project type, such as the the California uh, ETS. Uh, but you know, doing that uh, at the large scale, it's um, it's a different uh, it's a different question and. Uh, 
there will be uh, challenges related to, as you pointed out, the, the accounting for it and the integrity of the removals units. Um, there will be challenges related to the uh, economics of uh, how this can actually work, you know, uh, for uh, how um, high, you know, the, the prices that we observed in some systems uh, lately can be. There is still uh, a big differential between the allowance price in, 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 the, uh, in the systems uh, today and the price needed to... Um, uh, make uh, at least technology uh, removals uh, profitable. So there will be, uh, you know, questions on how you, you actually bridge that uh, price uh, differential in uh, in the short term. And then there is a more fundamental question that will need to be addressed uh, over time, uh, related to um, to what extent you want to achieve uh, a balance between uh, reductions in the system and uh, removals that might come in uh, in the system, and that has to do with uh, you know how uh, net zero targets are formulated. It is related to uh, you know to what extent you want to uh, to reduce emissions to a certain level before. You, you balance them with, uh, with removals and how that uh, balance might uh, also uh, evolve over time. So it is uh, a fascinating uh, topic. There are a lot of uh, questions that have to be resolved both from uh, a technical point of view, but also from a more uh, theoretical and, uh, and philosophical point of view. And I would expect this kind of discussion to become more and more um, predominant and take the, the center stage in uh, in more and more jurisdictions in the uh, in the coming uh, years. That's so interesting, and I totally agree with you. It's 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 just a fascinating set of questions, and the technical and moral issues around them are are deep and complex. Um, so it, it's going to be a really interesting issue to watch over the years. You mentioned California just a minute ago. We only have a couple minutes left, but I'd love to ask you to give us um, a, a quick summary of you know what's been happening in California this year, um, whether it has to do with prices or um, you know market development or changes in rules or procedures. Can you give us a quick update on California? Yeah, and um, more than happy to. And uh, again, uh, California is one of those jurisdictions where um, we got really interesting stories coming out from uh, the last few months. So first of all, and obviously, California is a fascinating example of uh, you know how a system, uh, an emission trading system, can operate at the subnational level and uh, how it can actually drive. Uh, decarbonization uh, at the subnational uh, level, and it does offer interesting insights from from that point of view. Um, even more so as it is a subnational system that is linked uh, internationally to another uh, subnational system in um, in Canada. So it is linked with the with the Quebec ETS. Obviously, in terms of uh, what we've been uh, observing over the, the last uh, few months. California, in line with uh, you know almost uh, all uh, other systems around the world, has seen uh, an increase in uh, in the allowance price. Again, on the back of uh, the post-COVID uh, recovery and on the back of uh, ambitious uh, long and medium-term targets that have been um, adopted uh, over time. Um, and uh, a really interesting uh, story and lessons learned and, uh, and case study that California offers is related to the way uh, in which uh, auctioning revenues are 
uh, actually reinvested in the system. And this is really, really important right now at the time of uh, you know high energy prices that might impose an extra burden on uh, you know the most vulnerable parts of the uh, of the population. And um, California has a really interesting uh, system to uh, reinvest and redirect the, the auctioning revenues to support uh, disadvantaged uh, communities. And uh, it has been doing that uh, really uh, effectively uh, over the, the last few years, and especially over the, the course of, uh, of the last uh, 12 months. And it is an interesting uh, model to, to look at for almost all systems as, you know, almost all jurisdictions are grappling right now with uh, high energy prices um, that might impact uh, consumers and the uh, as well as the other businesses covered by the uh, by the system yeah that's really interesting um, and right the use of these revenues is such an important uh, element of, of program design and, and it's really interesting to see how different jurisdictions are, are approaching it in different ways. Uh, well, Stefano Declara, this has been so fascinating. I know you know we could talk about this stuff for hours, uh, but we really appreciate you coming on and summarizing some of the key findings from this year's status report. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation. So we'd love to close it out now with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard um, that you think is really interesting and that you'd recommend to our listeners. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Um, so it is quite literal, uh, as it's uh, as it's a consistent uh, stack that never uh, gets uh, slimmer over time, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. um, but this is actually a book that uh, came back to the stack because I um, I read it I think back in uh, high school or in uh, in during my university, uh, and it's not necessarily a uh, a happy read. Uh, it's uh, it's a book called uh, Collapse by uh, Jared Diamond. Um, and um, it's a book that looks at uh, how different uh, civilizations in the past uh, went from a phase of uh, you know prosperity to uh, the collapse of the uh, of the given uh, civilization, uh, and and the book uh, really analyzes like the reasons why that uh, that happened, and uh, it's fascinating, or I mean. <laughs> Fascinating or worrying to to see uh, to what extent those examples uh, can relate to uh, today's uh, reality. You know, like in a, in a few examples, civilizations uh, came to a collapse because they used the, the natural resources behind the uh, behind what was uh, sustainable. In other times, they uh, they came to a collapse uh, as a result of uh, local instances of uh, climate change that. Uh, Paused uh, threats that couldn't be uh, overcome, uh, and um, yeah, it's um, it's always interesting to to look at these examples and hopefully, you know, find a way to to learn from uh, what what happened in the uh, in the past. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, I haven't read that book in a long time either, but I do remember some of its lessons and and certainly worrying examples, but. But the work that you do at ICAP and your colleagues do, you know, it certainly gives us one of the tools that we need to reduce the risk of, uh, of collapse in our society, uh, which hopefully uh, won't be coming anytime soon. Well, one more time, uh, Stefano Declara from the International Climate Action Partnership. Thank you so much for coming on to Resources Radio today. We've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you for, for having me and look forward to, uh, to the next time we'll talk. 
You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.